0: Good morning. It is good to be with you. We had expected to be with you last week and uh, on Thursday uh, our youngest, our seven-year-old came home from school and ended up getting sick. Uh, She was joined by our oldest on Friday who got sick. Uh, I participated in this group project beginning on Saturday getting sick. And then on my wife's birthday on Sunday, she too thought she should get sick. So we, uh, we did it as a group, some kind of a stomach thing. It, it was awful, but it didn't last that long. We're all better and here this morning and so on. So, uh, Harry, thank you for performing whatever uh, miracles you performed to uh, make changes at the last moment last week for, for me. And uh, we're certainly glad to be here uh, this morning with you and to uh, share time in God's Word. I appreciate, uh, Jim, There, you're right here, Jim Bird. Thank you for your prayer this morning. I appreciate your your words. I, I think uh, to echo those words, when we look at our culture and when we wonder what's going on in, in the various things that are being introduced, the various uh, doctrines that are being put forward, then we return to the Word of God. And so uh, I want to really speak on sort of a theme this morning. Vanessa was asking me on our way here what exactly I had planned to do. I I don't really have a title, I have a a theme, and I have a passage to send you to so that you'll feel good about being sent to a passage. But, but we're actually going to sort of work more on a movement across Scripture. I, I basically want to have, show you an idea that spans Scripture, and I want to give you three illustrations of how we see it changing culture. Uh, two of them are going to be from the past, and one of them is implied for today, and that's how we'll uh, end uh, this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you can make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1st Timothy chapter 4. It'll be a few minutes before we get there, but 1st Timothy chapter 4 will be... um Uh, will be where we're uh, we're headed. I I want us to think back to uh, the first century and to some of the work of the Apostle Paul. Uh, If you have a little understanding of his life, he, of course, was this expat. He was this Jew who was raised outside of Israel. He was from Tarsus. And so, uh, as is often the case when you uh, either grow up uh, as, as a particular, uh, missionary kids often understand this. You grew up as an American, but you grew up overseas in the mission field, maybe in Africa or Asia, wherever uh, your parents might be serving. Sometimes you you become more American because you're trying to make up for the fact that you don't live there. I think Paul had a little bit of that. He was particularly Jewish uh, because he didn't get to grow up in, if you will, the homeland. He grew up in, in the Roman Empire in a Greek city called Tarsus. And, uh, uh, and eventually became a Pharisee. He went to get some schooling. We don't know exactly what age he left Tarsus and and went to Israel. But eventually uh, got trained there under Gamaliel. Became a Pharisee, which which is essentially a, a lawyer, a, a Bible lawyer who who understands the especially the the legal uh, law text throughout Scripture. And uh, ends up to be sort of this radical who recognizes there is this divergence within Judaism that some people are following this, this rabbi, this teacher from the north named Jesus, and he saw to it to try and stamp that out. And so he began sort of the persecution uh, of people on the way, uh, people following Christ, and uh, of course you probably know the story, on his way to try and get some of these Jesus. Jesus' followers in Damascus. He's making his way to Damascus and he encounters none other than Jesus himself. And uh, his life begins to be transformed. And God appoints for him, uh, sort of uniquely, that I want you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That is, I want you, you are a Jew, but you're from the Gentile lands, and I want you to go back amongst those lands, if you will, and amongst those people, and and to be my spokesperson uh, uh, for that, uh, really one among many. And of course, that's how Paul ends up spending his life, being this apostle. He's based in Antioch in modern-day Syria, uh, and after much uh, prayer and fasting, they uh, get the idea in that church to lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them on their way. And so we kind of We name that thing when you send someone on your way like that, and they go from place to place sharing the gospel. We call that a missionary journey. And as it turns out, Paul makes three missionary journeys. And uh, at the end of his second missionary journey, he's trying to get his way into what we would call here uh, Western Turkey, what the Bible would call Asia Minor, and he's trying to get to the city of Ephesus. And if you remember the story, he tried to get there earlier, but he had a dream of a Macedonian man who said, "Come up here and." Share the gospel, and that's really how the gospel jumps into Europe. That Macedonian dream ultimately sends Paul to Philippi, and Philippi is sort of the first gospel, if I can call it, you know, you know, breachhead into Europe. Through Philippi, and he ends up traveling through Greece onto Thessalonica, planning a church there through Berea down to Athens, and so on and so forth. Corinth starts a church there as well. He makes his way back to Ephesus and realizes that I'd really like to spend time here, but now is not the time, and says he'll come back. So he's very briefly in Ephesus on the second missionary journey, and on his third missionary journey, then he spends two and a half to three years in Ephesus. And so, what I really want to talk about is Ephesus, which is why I know you're wondering why you're in First Timothy. We'll get there. At least, uh, if not, we'll just Cover it in the closing prayer, right? That's when you wrap (laughs) things up. You just stick it all in the prayer and say amen at the end. So uh, Paul, if you're following, is going to this town. And you've got to understand a little bit about Ephesus. From what we know of the first century when Jesus lived, when the apostle Paul lived, the largest city in the world was Rome, right around a million people. The second largest city in the world was Alexandria down in Egypt. And the third largest city in the world was Ephesus. Now, I say all that with a note that we really don't know how big cities were in China at this time. It is entirely possible that they had many cities of those sizes or even larger. But from what we know, Rome is one, Alexandria is two, and Ephesus is three. So in the Western world, in the Roman mindset, Ephesus is very, very important, the third largest city. If you wanted to kind of frame that in an American context, I guess we would say probably New York is the largest city, metroplex, whatever, in America would get Los Angeles. Angela 2nd, Chicago Third, right? Chicago plays an important part in the life of America. It's the third largest city or area or whatever. And, and, and so that's what Ephesus is. Ephesus is this huge city that's very prominent. Uh, in the days of Ephesus and its sort of its strength, it was on the coast. I say that because if you went there today, you'd go, where's the coast? the coast is still there. It just happens to be, what, about 31 miles or 28 miles away in light of some shifting things and, and some um, deforestation that's gone on in the first century that has an effect on water lines and so on. So today, it's actually not on the Mediterranean Sea, but it once was, and it was a port city, and it was rather important. And so through the history of Ephesus, and I highly doubt you came here this morning because you wanted to hear a history of Ephesus, so I'll keep this brief, uh, but uh, very early on, in the pagan worship practices of Ephesus. And again, Ephesus is where Paul will eventually write the letter of Ephesians, okay? And so Ephesians is this letter that Paul will write to the church that he plants in this city named Ephesus. Again, this is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, possibly in the world, and a significant city, and it has a reputation. It has things that it's known for, just like Chicago does, just like Dallas does, and Houston does, and New York does, and Los Angeles. You you, you, you have, you have ideas that come to your mind. Some of you have visited the places, some of you have lived in some of these cities, and so on, and so they have reputations, as does Ephesus. And so Ephesus is dominated by the worship of the goddess who provides all things, essentially, for those people. It's the goddess Artemis. And so Ephesus was known as the place to go and worship Artemis. And and it had a temple already back some 350 years before Christ was born. Already the first temple to Artemis already existed in the ancient form of Ephesus that lived uh, back in those days. In fact, that temple was destroyed. It's longer than 350. In 356 BC, it was destroyed by invading Goths. And I know you didn't come here to learn about the invading Goths. It's just interesting that the day it was destroyed, Alexander, the Great was born. And Alexander the Great, as he comes to power, is going to rebuild that temple in Ephesus that was destroyed the day he was born. And if you think of Alexander the Great, we're talking about the time in between the Testaments, that is between the Old Testament and New Testament, there's about 400 years there. The only number you need to remember is very simple, three, three, three. In 333 BC, Alexander the Great, who's a Greek, he's from Macedonia, he's a Greek, and the Greeks come and they invade Israel. And this is where the language of of Greece, of Greek, is introduced into Israel. And as Alexander is invading, and that's in 333, and so all that to say is Alexander is working his way through um, Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey, working his way through all the way down to Egypt, and ultimately will go east. Uh, uh, from that point on but when in Ephesus he helps to rebuild the temple of Artemis it's considered one of the seven wonders of the world if you want to know size if you think of the Parthenon that's that famous building in Athens up on the hill the Parthenon the temple of Artemis is four times larger than the Parthenon okay so it's huge and it's all to the worship of this goddess Artemis and I say worship, and it's kind of a nice, polite term. In pagan circles, worship wasn't that. It wasn't nice people kneeling and praying and so on. It was practice. Uh, it, it was primarily through sexual deviancy that she was worshipped. All sorts of, of, of deviant acts were done on her behalf or in front of her or, or, or in this, this temple that was built. And the temple really was the center of commerce for this large city in Ephesus. There, it was really a bank. If you had money to invest, that's where you would invest it. And, and that money was used. It was the center of tourism where people would come to worship. It was the center of commerce. And because 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 that's where all the trading was done, that's where investments were done, which would eventually lead to people buying and selling ships and things all through the temple of Artemis. But it was through sexual deviancy that she was worshipped and promoted, and so some came specifically to participate in those things. Ephesus was, if I could say it this way, a form of Las Vegas. Um, What happened in Ephesus stayed in Ephesus. That was kind of the the, the thing in those days. It, It was... It was sickening what all happened in this town. And again, it's, it's large. It's influential. It's a port city. That means you have sailors coming in and out and, and participating in, in temple activities and so on. And, and all of this happens. And the apostle Paul comes and he comes and it's, it's about two and a half years, maybe as much as three years he spends teaching and preaching in this large city of Ephesus. And and just to give you a glimpse, I probably should have sent you to the book of Acts, but I'm in Acts, Acts chapter 19, here's what uh, is said, we'll go to First Timothy in just a moment, but in Acts 19 we get a comment about Paul's work in Ephesus, and you can just listen to it as follows, Acts 19 beginning in verse 23, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. The way was how we referred to people following Christ. It's before the word Christian comes along, it was known as the way. So there did, uh, occurred no small disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver, silver shrines of Artemis was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business, okay? So this guy is a silversmith. He's a craftsman, and what they would make is they would make miniature Goddesses, and she has a particular look that they would decorate her in, and so on. They'd make miniature ones so you could buy one and put it in your house. And they'd make various acts to uh, various uh, uh, instruments and items to decorate her temple. It was a place of very, very lavish beauty and all sorts of things. And so, silversmiths, goldsmiths uh, were very common in their work of building and continuing to upgrade and update the, the temple premises, and so on. And that's what this Demetrius is. And so, he gathers a bunch of his fellow uh, jewelers, a bunch of his fellow silversmiths and goldsmiths. And and he says here, you see, uh, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see in here, not only in Ephesus, which is where Demetrius is from, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Okay, So the Apostle Paul has been preaching, gods, small g, made with hands are no gods, small g, at all. That is, the silversmiths don't have the ability to make gods. The goldsmiths don't have the ability to make gods. Artemis, this gold statue inside this fancy temple, isn't a god. Gods can't be made with hands. It's the message in Ephesus. It's the message across Asia. And now one of the silversmiths says, hold it this is causing problems. He goes on, uh, we're in Acts 19, not only is there danger that this trade of of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess, goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship would even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage, and they began to cry out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's interesting, because basically what Demetrius is telling is, here's what happens when the gospel comes in. When the gospel comes in, the goddesses fall down. When, when the gospel comes in, uh, commerce is disrupted. When the gospel comes in, marriages change in Ephesus, and rather than spending time at the temple and practicing sexual deviancy, people are not going to the temple. And if this doesn't change, mighty Artemis, why she, she might even lose her magnific- magnific- magnificence across Asia. Hard to say. She lost it, so it really doesn't matter. The Gospel changes the culture. And so if we get a little understanding of Paul and his work in Ephesus, and then we look today at, well, look at what's going on in our culture. I mean, now we're asking all sorts of questions about marriage and sexual deviancy. Well, what about two men or, or two women? Or or what if you just, men would dress like women or women like men or, or shared bathrooms or, or, or what? And, and we go on and on and on because we're progressive, right? We're progressing past the traditional definition of marriage, which is interesting because... That was created by God. And we're made in God's image. And there's nothing to progress past. There's no such thing as progression. It doesn't exist. That's an institute made by God. And, and so the gospel changes the marriages in Ephesus, and Demetrius runs out of work. That's what happened. The gospel dethroned the power of the Roman Empire, who worship anything you could come up with, you could worship, as long as in the end you confessed that Caesar was Lord, your God was perfectly fine, whoever it might be, and in the end the Roman Empire becomes Christian and, if I can add so foolishly, created a law that you could only be Christian. Then, As a matter of fact, they go so far that they institute Christianity that if you were born, you were Christian. Those were the two requirements. Birth. Christianity and, and and so that wasn't what Christianity was either but the gospel radically changed the culture we'll go a little farther into our text but in a little while I want to talk to you about the Reformation and the exact same thing happened where the gospel changed the culture and by the time we get to the end I'm going to make a suggestion to you that the solution to what we see on the news and what we see on the on, on being discussed, and all the rampant deviancy that we see in our culture, either being talked about or even practiced today, might be changed by the same thing that changed first century Roman Ephesus, and that changed in 15th century Reformation Europe. I think the same thing could happen today. And so in First Timothy 4, we pick up the story. Now, the reason I sent you and talked about Ephesus is because Paul will continue to to travel, and if you know his first missionary journey, one of the places he goes, again in Asia Minor, again in modern-day Turkey, this time on the east side of Turkey. So, we're talking about uh, maybe some 200 miles from Ephesus. He goes to, I just want to remember which town it is, uh, Lystra. When he goes to Lystra, he meets this young man who seems to have a lot of potential named Timothy. And so, Timothy begins, begins to join Paul from time to time on his missionary journeys. He begins to do errands. He's one of the ones who delivers some of the letters that Paul writes, or he goes and checks up on people uh, uh, that Paul asks him to check up on, or better said, to check up on churches that Paul has planted. And so, Timothy has become one of Paul's trusted friends and advisors and co-workers in the gospel. He's a, make plays a significant role in the in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and so he carries this rule, and by the time we get to 1 Timothy, Paul has been arrested, and he's in Rome, and he's asked Timothy, watch out for the church in Ephesus. And so, Pastor Timothy is in Ephesus, in the very city we just talked about, home of Artemis worship. That's where Timothy is, and Paul is writing him this letter. And so, Timothy is reading these words in Ephesus. We pick it up in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, and so again, uh, I should just sort of frame this for you. So, Paul is near the end of his life. He's been arrested. He doesn't know that he'll ever get out or not. Scripture doesn't record whether he does or doesn't, but it doesn't seem that he does, and he's going to write this letter. He's going to write a second letter to Timothy. We know it as Second Timothy, and, and, and that's going to be it. That'll be the end. So Paul is near the end. Timothy is much younger, and so this is this is some of the passing of the torch. This is hey, we've got churches to care for. We've got people. You've been a part of this ministry, these missionary journeys, delivering letters, writing letters. You're here serving as pastor at the church at Ephesus. I, I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you. And I want to I want to pass the torch. I want you to keep these things in mind. That that's the letter of First Timothy. Don't don't forget about these things. And this chapter four is some of These things, the spirit clearly says that in latter times, Paul writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. In latter times. Now, latter times is a little bit of a code word that you have to understand. Once Jesus comes, once the Christ event, the birth of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ, all of which has happened, then we are at the end. Because once that happens, the Spirit is poured poured out. That's Acts chapter 2. And when the Spirit is poured out, Peter gets up and preaches, this is exactly what Joel said, the prophet Joel, that in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out. So the first century church very much is living in the last days and knows that just as we are living in the last days. That is, the Spirit has been poured out, and the next thing that happens is the end. And so it's called the last days, the last times. And so what Paul is saying is now. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, that is now near the end, when the Spirit's poured out, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things, uh, excuse me, and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. <clears throat> excuse me. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything that God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving, uh, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer." So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's reminding him of some of the things that were said. Now, Paul's not quoting a specific passage. Jesus is saying some similar things in Mark chapter... Seven, I think. Seven or eight. Uh, and, and so, this is somewhat like that. There is a prophet who is unnamed in Acts chapter 11 who's also making some similar statements. And so, the, 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 Paul is simply, the point is the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, means, meaning these are the types of things that are coming. These are the types of things that have already been said. That is, we could tie these things back to Jesus' teaching and even others' teaching about what is going to happen. So here's what's going to happen, that in the later times, some will abandon the faith. Well, why would they do that? Well, because of they want to follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now, I think that deceiving spirits here is actually the people who, who are giving these false messages and the demons are the message, uh, are, are the ones who want the message given. In other words, the demons use people false teachers, to skew the church astray, to lead them astray. So whatever it is, this, these uh, deceiving spirits and taught by demons, here's what's happening. People will abandon the faith because deception, okay? And then more explanation, verse 2. Such teachings, the things that are being said, if you'll allow me to add this, presumably in the church, right? Right? I mean, if you go speak on the street corner, I don't think the the believers are going to be led astray. But if you say it in the church, if there's there's hypocritical liars in the church, people who say or seem to represent one thing and mislead people because of their, verse 2, seared consciences. that they, they don't even have the conscience to recognize they're leading people astray. And so the whole message is, Timothy, don't forget, in these last days, people are going to get led astray. They're going to get led astray because you're going to have deceiving teaching, deceiving spirits within the church, and these types of people, they have no conscience. It's been seared. They, they don't feel the angst of pulling someone away from trust and faith in Christ To now primarily trust and faith in nothing is usually what you get pulled to, possibly to yourself, or you just become disillusioned. And so Paul is describing this to Timothy. Uh, They forbid people to marry. Here's what they end up teaching. We're going to actually forbid people to marry and under... And order them to abstain from certain foods, ultimately, which God created and uh, uh, to be received with thanksgiving. So, So, the nature of the teaching is going to affect the marriages in the church. Let me say that differently the nature of the deception is going to affect the marriages in the church. There's going to be this encouragement. Not to marry, which is kind of interesting, because I did some looking in the internet uh, uh, on statistics, and you can find anything. So I have no idea what's true, but but I think you would agree with me that the number of people today who think that it's okay to live together but you don't need to be married, however they define it, is massive. Fifty percent. Other sites, sixty percent. I found a 72%. I have no idea what the right number is because the number doesn't matter. It's people that matter. And any one person who thinks that is being led astray because living together isn't marriage. In our world, marriage has become you live together and then marriage, which is a, a, a ceremony with often a white dress and so on, and then you go back to living together right? That, that, that's that's sort of, you know, so you live together, you have a ceremony, and you live together. That's, that's kind of how marriage is seen, and marriage can ultimately be in our society anything you want it to be, any way you want to uh, define it or redefine it. And so Paul is saying, watch out, this is what's going to lead people astray. This is what led people astray in Ephesus, the home of Artemis, where instead of being married, young men would go to the temple to worship and, and what you'd end up having is children with no parents, a huge influx of orphans. As a matter of fact, if Rome has the, the Roman Empire has made any contribution to the world, that's its primary thing, is it's created more orphans than any empire before it or after it. It's unbelievable what comes out of this teaching, and this teaching is going to find its way into the church. By the time we get to the medieval times, to the 14th century, if you want to be spiritual, you need to be celibate. As a matter of fact, that's what it's going to take to become a priest, is this commitment to celibacy. Which priests take if you want to be godly and, and take on the role of, you know, a sort of a shepherd in, in, in the institutional church, then you need to be celibate. And then you need to figure out how to hide your kids. And, and it becomes a, a game from the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries where priesthoods are demanding that uh, their priests be celibate to how do we hide the nuns with the children. There's all sorts of stories of these things. Uh, Some of them are are rather humorous if they weren't so sad that that here's what Paul says. Verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. So we have two things on the table, marriage, certain foods let me throw one out there just to make it easier for us, bacon, okay? Two things, marriage and bacon. That's what we're talking about here at this point. More than likely, this has Jewish roots, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. What do you mean? Are you talking about bacon now or marriage? Yes. Right? Right? Both were made by God, right? Both are good. Now, There was a time in Jewish development where there were laws of foods that were clean and unclean, and they were to not participate in the split-hoofed animal of which pigs fall into, and so Jews didn't eat pork, including uh, bacon. Okay. There was a time. And then there was a time when that was made clean, and we see that in the book of Acts when Peter has this dream, this vision with the four sheets, and the, the dirty animals come down. The Lord says, eat, and Peter says, no, and the Lord says, eat, and he says, how can you call unclean things that of I have made clean? And then Peter finds himself with Paul in Antioch, ministering among Gentile believers, and what do they do? They go out for breakfast, and it's <clears throat> and eggs. And, and Peter's like, uh, what do I do here? We're having <clears throat> and eggs. And, and so eggs, yes. And then uh, he has bacon right? You remember the story? This is talked about in the book of Galatians. Peter realizes that these Gentile brothers and sisters can eat bacon. They're not Jews. They're not needing to keep the laws of clean and unclean. And what God has made good, what God has made clean is clean. And so they participate. And Peter says, bacon and eggs, please, by the second morning. Bacon and eggs, please. I'll do the bacon. And then Jews from Jerusalem come. And Peter says, eggs only. And Paul goes after him and says, how dare you? How dare you break Jewish ceremonial law with us when Jews aren't looking over your shoulder, and then when they come, piously say, eggs only. And and there's this corrective that's already gone on in the church. What God has made clean is clean. Marriage and food. They were teaching in Ephesus not to get married, not for some celibate thing like they were doing in the middle centuries before the time of the Reformation, but much more to participate in the various forms of prostitution that were going on at the temple for quote-unquote worship. Today, we're encouraged Similar ways. Not because we worship at some kind of prostitution the way that happened in Artemis, but we undermine the idea of marriage by trying to redefine it. It now means whatever you want, this one plus this one, any any number of people and places and things and so on. And also in the fact that it's just not necessary. I mean, you can just live together. You can see it on virtually any television show, on any channel, on any time, night or day, on any media form, that that has become common in our culture, that marriage is getting undermined. There is a common theme between first century Roman Empire Ephesus, between the, uh, uh, the time that spawned the birth of the Reformation in the medieval times when marriage was being undermined because all the spiritual people were quote-unquote celibate and then hiding their families that were following their inability to be celibate and today when marriage again is under undermined and again I can show you in the first century and in the Reformation the difference the gospel makes I want to imply to you that it would work today as well to change our marriages, to change our culture. Because that's what we begin to see. Here we go. All right. Uh, So uh, the gospel, the good news that Paul preached, has its roots in the exaltation of the family. Let me say that again. The gospel that Paul preached has its roots, the roots of the gospel, this is the theme I want to show you, has its roots in the exaltation of the family. I'm going to jump a little. You can always go back and listen to this again or or write down references here. Allow me to jump so that we can make some progress as I show you the theme. Listen to Paul when he writes to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. I know you know 28. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. That's 28. And 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. A glimpse as to what God's plan always was, that God's son, let's call him Jesus, that God's son Jesus would be the firstborn of many brothers. What are we all here? brothers and sisters. We're family, right? What if we all moved to Maine? Well, we would be brothers and sisters there too, because there are churches there who believe in Christ, and they become our brothers and sisters. Or we move to a faraway place, the same thing. We are brothers and sisters. The, the church is not made up of a membership, and this is nothing against membership, but it's all fine. The church is a family. It's a body. You're being invited into a familial relationship, that is, the basis of the gospel has been that the way the Father loved the Son is going to be the way that the Father is going to love his image bearers. He, that's Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren, many brothers and sisters. Our relationship with God the Father is precisely the same as Jesus' relationship with God the Father. We are God's children. We're not even grandchildren. Theologically, I would like the idea of grandchildren. You got God the Father, you got Jesus the Son, and we're all grandkids. We're not. We're kids. We're not even grandkids. We are children of the Father. This is the gospel. That is, we are being saved not merely for our sin, but saved into a family. We are a family as believers in Christ. This is the gospel message. Let me show you. Uh, Romans 8, Um, looking at verse uh, 15, we were in 29, I'm backing up. Romans 8, 15, I should have probably just sent you to Romans originally. I guess I should have sent you to Acts, though. It doesn't matter, we'll be in Isaiah in no time. 4, verse 15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of Adoption, Paul says, as sons or as sons and daughters, if you like, by which we cry out Abba. Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We are adopted into God's family. That's what the gospel offers. It offers salvation. Well, what's salvation? It's the process of being adopted into the very family of God. You literally have the God of all creation as your father, It is a familial experience. Uh, We keep going, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're at the same level as Christ the Son, if indeed we suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him. Further back in Romans chapter 8, or further forward, uh, further back from the previous uh, passage verse 23, and not only this, we ourselves, having been the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What are we waiting for? To be adopted, for that to be fully manifest, that we literally live as children of the Father. Paul, writing to the church of Galatia, he says in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that's us that we might receive adoption as sons, so that we could be part of the family. So he doesn't save us so we can be Christians, although that's a good word to call us. He doesn't save us because then you can be a member of a church, although church membership is a good. He saves us as his own children. We're not his servants, although we serve him. and so servanthood is a biblical concept, but we're more than servants. We can't be fired. We can't. We can't be lost. We're children. We're his children. We've been adopted in. This is the gospel message. This is what Paul preached in Ephesus, and this is what destroyed the temple of Artemis. Go to Ephesus today, some of the best biblical ruins in the world, and you know what you find when you come to the temple of Artemis? We're not sure where it is. We we think it's in this marsh over here, but it's all marsh, and so it's really hard to tell. This is a building four times bigger than the Parthenon, and we're not precisely sure where it sat in Ephesus because it's gone. It doesn't matter anymore. Alexander the Great built it up, and God allowed it to go out of service. And so everything changes here. When we start to understand adoption, Paul to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter one, verse five, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to be the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and he beloved. God did not want us to be a collection of people who loved him. We're more than a collection. He didn't want us really just to be a group or a membership. He wanted us as children. And so understanding the gospel message transforms the understanding of family. Fathers and sons. Fathers and daughters. Husbands and wives. There's more because Christ is going to take on this role. If you think about the whole Bible, the Bible kind of begins with marriage, and it actually ends with marriage, and it's filled with this with this imagery of marriage throughout because marriage plays this important role. Let me remind you of Genesis 2, verse 22, the Lord made woman uh, from the rib and taken from the man, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of of man, And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. And so the introduction of marriage is the introduction of a new creation. That is a one flesh creation between a man fully made in the image of God and a woman fully made in the image of God coming together to form this new one flesh union that best reflects the image of God. That is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the Godhead. And so this is how the Bible begins. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, "...nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come." Paul says, Romans chapter 5, "...Adam is the pattern of one to come." I just got Adam married, right? Genesis chapter 2, it's Adam's wedding. He marries this this young girl, Eve, okay? Just a real, real part of him, literally. And and so they get married, and he is a pattern, Romans chapter 5, of the one to come. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing again, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, That is, the picture of marriage that we grab from Genesis 2 is merely the idea of helping us to understand how much Jesus loves his body, how much Christ loves the church. That is, becoming a believer is becoming and entering into a marriage relationship, the body being the bride of the bridegroom that's what the church is, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And and so this is what we begin to see. We get this picture then in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. That's how it ends. It ends at the wedding supper, the marriage of the bridegroom, the lamb, Jesus, the son of God, marrying his bride, his beloved, The church, Revelation 19, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. What on earth does that look like? Here it is, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What vision do we have of those final things? I can't imagine what Jerusalem looks like. Oh, no problem. Picture a bride... Getting ready to be married to her husband. That's the right picture. When you picture that, you've got the right mental image. You have the book of Hosea, the book of Song of Solomon, Song of Songs. Uh, Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord God Almighty is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. That is, God calls himself the husband of his people. In other words, you want to understand what our relationship is like? It's not I'm the boss and you're the employee. It's I'm the husband, you're the wife. That's how I feel about you. I don't know why you don't obey me. Isaiah's writing in a time of great disobedience. I don't know why you disobey me. I love you like a husband loves his beloved, his wife. Our time is gone. Ultimately, that means we've got to get to Isaiah 62. Go to Isaiah 62. I just don't understand. I prepared 37 passages. Where does the time go? So what happens when you speak on a theme once you get to isaiah 62 go back to isaiah 61 okay we're interested in isaiah 62 but we need to know who's speaking and that doesn't happen we don't learn that till we go backwards to isaiah 61 isaiah 61 preparation for our passage in isaiah 62 the spirit of the sovereign lord is on me whoa Who says that? Isaiah is prophetically speaking about some time in the future when someone is going to come and say, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim freedom to the... Yeah, it sounds like Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. Isaiah is writing this prophecy that he's receiving from the Father, and what he's writing is the future words of Jesus. And Jesus will speak these words, recorded in Luke and recorded in Matthew, during his ministry as he's anointed with the Holy Spirit at baptism, and that he is proclaiming this jubilee, Isaiah 61. Now our passage, Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. This is Jesus speaking. Zion is his people. It's the way that he refers Zion to the place where his people dwell. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn. In the original, this would be written in Hebrew, it's a little easier to see this is all in the feminine. This is addressing, uh, Jesus is addressing his people, Jerusalem, as his bride in the feminine. As his bride. Listen to the language. It'll become clear as we keep reading. So, till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like the blazing torch. This is what Jesus wants of his bride. The nations will see your vindication, and all the kings your glory. And you will be called a new name, and the mouth of the Lord will bestow, and you will be crowned of splendor in the Lord's hand. There's this crown that comes on these people, this well, this is the church. This is the bride of Christ, being prophesied some six hundred years before Christ's birth, as to what was Christ was going to do with His people sometime in the future, when her glory would be shown. You will be given a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in your hand. No longer will he call you deserted, or your name, uh, or name your land desolate. <clears throat> You will be called uh, Heshbalah and and Beulah, uh, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. You see the imagery is of the bride. As a young man marries a young woman, so you, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The gospel is the invitation to the perfect wedding. Because someone loves us perfectly, which is precisely what our culture is looking for. That's why we're redefining marriage. If it didn't work in a normal marriage, what if we redefine it this way? Maybe I can find true love then. Maybe if I'm a man, I could just pretend to be a woman. That might do it for me. Maybe we could just cross-dress and dress the opposite way. That might work. Let's try whatever we can because we're looking for true and perfect love. You know where they'll find it? In the gospel. The same thing that changed in in first century in Ephesus, the same thing that transformed Europe in medieval times with the rediscovery of scripture, with Luther, the monk, marrying Catherine von Bora, the nun, and having a wonderful family, and other monks and nuns uh, marrying and and monasteries being emptied and the growth of the family. Europe was transformed through the family. The family existed because of the gospel. And that's the invitation that we need to give our world. Invite them to the gospel where they can be part of the family and become the bride for the perfect groom. Father, we're grateful for this theme that we see that we can get some understanding of. We have some understanding of marriage and a beautiful bride standing before her groom, and we can kind of picture how much you love us, and yet it's a good reminder for us that this is what changes the world. And so we thank you for this marriage uh, illustration that you've given us that our human marriages are a glimpse of how much you love us, how you, Father, have cared for your people in the Old Testament, and Christ, how you have uh, used this language to describe your relationship with your body, your church, and so, Father, we anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb, and until then we pray, pray that we might share that same gospel to a world that looks for love. In the greatest lover of all's name, amen.